everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I am sitting here in Dining Room Studios with Josh Gondelman, comedian, author, writer for Last Week Tonight, and author of the forthcoming book, You Blew It, An Awkward Look at the Many Ways in Which You've Already Ruined Your Life. Comes out October 6th, but it's available for pre-order. And Josh told me, hello. Hello. That if you pre-order it, you'll email each person who pre-orders it and embarrassing secret about yourself true yeah so the easiest way to probably do it is if they pre-order it and tweet i can just dm them an embarrassing secret about myself but if they don't feel comfortable with that if they just email me i will email them back an embarrassing secret and so far they've all been unique embarrassing secrets that's what i was going to ask mm-hmm. aren't you potentially going to run out of embarrassing secrets well you don't know my life so i don't <laughs> <laughs> but that's i'm hoping to find out yes so i i think i have plenty and the the embarrassments uh range from the minor of like uh, I hate this thing that everyone says is good and oh, I like feel what? ashamed. Uh, let me think of one that I haven't said as a secret. Uh, well, oh, I can, it I'll, wouldn't be a secret I'll put it. I'll put this one out in the world. It's pretty low stakes. Okay. It's like, uh, I, I feel like the band Pavement mm. is like a prank on me, especially <laughs> their first album where people are like, this album changed my life. And I'm like, in what way? Uh, and, and not the, and like, I've liked other Stephen Malcolm stuff, mm-hmm. but like when people, that specific album is a touchstone for people, I'm just like, oh, it just doesn't, I don't, I guess it's not for me. Right. And things like that. I liked the one that has cut your hair on it, which I feel like is probably the most commercial album. That was not their first. That, um, I, I'm so poorly schooled, but I like, the, I forget. I also like, was. I have like very populist taste in a lot of things mm-hmm. where someone will be like, that's the one where that band really like lost their way and went too commercial. And I'll be like, You're like that's, that's when I one. discovered yeah. them. Yeah. And that's not, there were six kick-ass songs on that <laughs> record. And yeah. So I've, I've been sending secrets to people. Um, one of my favorite things about your book actually was the way you guys talk about music, like right. That, that, I don't want to step on the joke, but no, that's okay. The Pixies joke at the very, very beginning mm-hmm. is I was hooked at that point and Thank it comes you. really fast. Um, it's the book is great. It's been a while since I just sat down and read a humor book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it. And do you remember how oh, maybe before your time, how old are you? 30. I don't remember when this came up, but there was a book called Life's Little Destruction Book, which was a parody of Life's Little Instruction Book. Oh. And this reminded me, it, Life's Little Destruction Book was just a list, mm-hmm. but this felt like the fle- a fleshed out version of that. Oh, thank you. So tell me um, like where the idea for the book came about and how that worked with you having a co-author. So Joe and I had been pitching, we... we- we had been working together on a book pitch for a, a different kind of book, uh, which was a fake pickup artist guide called Getting It Wet, The Nice Guy's Guide to Tricking Women from Friend Zone to Bone Zone. <laughs> and we were really psyched about it. And we took it out. And it, uh, people had kind of uniformly the reaction of like, this is really funny, but we can't see people buying it. So we, but a Why? couple, they just thought it was too niche that we we're cutting off too many people. And that if people, people who are interested in pickup artist guides, like real ones, wouldn't buy it. Right. And people who thought that that was repulsive, might it might be a hard sell even to convince them right. like, no, this is like, this is for you. Women might buy it. I think, I think so. And we, I think women buy way more books than men mm-hmm. to begin with. But uh, so I, I still really like that idea. Uh, but we, a couple of publishers, I think, enjoyed our writing. And we got into talks with a couple of them about like trying to figure out another uh, thing to pay. So we had a really nice conversation with an editor that we really liked and trusted. Uh, liked, I say that it's, it gets past tense. What happened was <laughs> he has since left 
our publisher has a, a new job, uh, but we really like and trust him. And so we kind of developed this uh, as a fun thing that we could work on that he felt like, yeah, we can we can work with this too. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice um, to work with the editor on uh, Matt uh, Dodonna on that. So that was that was kind of the process. So we wanted a, a something that was slightly less niche, but like equally ripe for being for humor. So we ended up writing a book about how to ruin your life, and even the parts that aren't specifically instructional are about how life is a nightmare, even under the very best of circumstances. Is that how you feel? I don't, <laughs> but I think it's like it's fun. It's fun to dig in like mm-hmm. that. And 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 sometimes I do feel that way, but I'm like overwhelmingly as a person, I'm like happy and grateful for things. But there are still those moments. I feel like all the thoughts we've expressed in the book are thoughts that I've had, but they're not like how I think uh, 24-7. They're just right. like things that pop up during the day and then you file away as like, ooh, this is like a thought that a monster has. And then you write it in a book. I, well, I think that my audience in particular will like the book because I have the segment Just Mirror Everyone, you know, which we'll do later on. Mm-hmm. We'll write in what things they think or do and they wonder, is it Just Mirror Everyone? And I, it's there's so many Just Mirror Everyone type situations presented in the book. Basically, I feel like the statement the book makes is, Everything, every second of the day is an opportunity for awkwardness and weird feelings. Yeah. And there's there's a way that even things that are innocuous or good, positive things, can be ruined at a moment's notice by something <laughs> that you thought was nothing or something that another person thought was nothing. And, and I think that that's like the fragility of our social constructs. That sounds so lofty. But like the idea of someone... Um, you liking someone's Facebook picture from four years ago. And then you have to move to a new city, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You have to delete your Facebook account, rebuild it from the ground up, uh, like Donald Trump filing for bankruptcy, (laughs) just like rebuild. (laughs) Well, I liked the point you made. It's funny. There's like some genuine earnest points tucked in there, um, but about the fragility of adult friendships Mm -hmm. versus the friendships you make when you're a kid. Yeah. I think adult friendships are like far more fragile and uh, especially with people like any like because when you're a child, the thing the the only thing that would end a friendship is like some dumb kid thing that would happen maybe or like they move away. But in New York or any city or town, when you're a grown up, when your friend gets a new job or enters into a new relationship that like changes or has a child and that changes everything and it's like i thought we were best friends it's like well now i'm married to my best friend and then i get this kid who i like better than that so yeah when i left new york so i was really uh good friends with this this woman in new york who used to come on my show a lot and i when i was traveling back and forth between new york and california she said something about um she didn't think we she she knew we probably weren't going to keep in touch when I moved and this was news to me and yeah. she's like I know that our relationship is or I know that our friendship is very location based mm-hmm. and I was like that's not true but for some reason the fact that she, and she was she cuz she would call me when I'd come to New York and I'd be like I don't talk on the phone this is weird yeah <laughs> but for some reason the fact that she said that almost gave me permission to de- to mm-hmm. not keep in touch even though she meant it as a lament i still feel guilty about it i understand exactly what you mean there are friends excuse me that are based on like we do this thing together right. this is a thing we do at this time and then there are the other friendships that are like better far away 
like people that it's better to miss them like people that you have great phone conversations with or like great email correspondences with and then you see them and either they're like too much fun they're right. like hey we're going out till three and it's like now nah, we're not you're going you might i'm not right i'll be sleeping in your car uh while you're partying or people that it's just like uh i think this happens with internet dating a lot but there are some people i think probably in your regular life maybe that have this too where you just have this dynamic of like oh everything on paper is so good and then when you hang out it's like i guess we don't have that much to talk about now yes. we've covered it and the dynamic is not fun in person right well i think that's the pitfall of of what is good on paper or of meeting people based on the kind of stuff that you put online mm-hmm. is that in the old days of, I don't know how many years ago now, not that many, but before all of that, you would, the reason you would end up hanging out with someone is because you had a bond with them or, you know, there was chemistry because it was tested in real life. And now it's all just like trying to see if you can have that sort of, and I'm talking about even just platonic friendships to see if you have that connection when you both, you know, on paper, you should. Absolutely. Back in the, in the old days, it's like the on paper came later or never. Yes, probably never. You just because there wasn't like a record of everything you've ever said or thought that right. was available at a moment's notice uh, to from a device in your pocket. Yeah, like I can, you know, I there are people, any most people I know, I could go on my phone right now and look up all the thoughts they've expressed publicly, which is most thoughts now for like the last four years. Yeah, but it's all right there. And in a way, I sound like a grandma at this point, but in a way. The trying, the thinking that we should be friends because we are similar on paper is kind of a narcissistic enterprise anyway, because you're just like, oh, you're so much like me. Yeah. I would like to hang out with that. So the thing that I find that I have found in life is the, I, I online dated briefly, but I have a lot of friends that I know from like their writing on the internet and their, their work on, on the internet. And I think that that is almost a better litmus test. Like, tw- I think Twitter is better than OkCupid because yeah. on Twitter, you see people when they want to be seen, but also you get those slips of like, I'm at the airport. God damn it. I just, I, I wish this Sbarro was a, a salad, uh, was a just salad or something. And you get those like <laughs> little things that people wouldn't put in their right. it's not their best self and it's not their 100% self but it is like it's closer to human right and i right. i like that i i think people that you meet from that kind of stuff are generally better to talk to than people that you meet just because you're like you like weezer i like weezer and and then you're like oh but i don't know what you're like right because all i know is a, uh your biography right mm-hmm. right well that's actually how my my husband uh before I knew him, reached out to me. He read a bunch of stuff I wrote online and he was like, and he had listened to me on the podcast and he was like, you you think like I think and we would, you know, he just felt that we would have something in common uh, and we should know each other. And it turns out he was right. I feel like there were so many ways that he could have been wrong, but he was right. How did you meet your... Very similar. My my girlfriend, girlfriend? and I... Yeah, girlfriend. And I um, knew of each other through work online and I think she had it was like it's like so silly it's such a silly it this sounds like a nothing story but she had uh she had favorited some really weird obscure tweet uh that i had said it was like a really pretentious thing that i had said about like um i'm always people always assume i would love portnoy's complaint by philip roth and i'm always (laughs) offended like when i read it i was very offended that Uh people thought that that would be a book that like really resonated with me and uh, not that it's not well written, but I was like, that's, you think that's, I'm that guy? So I tweeted that and she favored it and I DM'd her. We, we like knew of each other and I was just like, 
I'm glad that that makes sense to people. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. Maybe she replied. Uh, it was like a very short conversation. It wasn't like, then we dif- forever were bonded. Right. But late the next week, a, fr- a mutual friend invited me to a party she was throwing. And I went to that. And so we had this kind of base level of like, we understand who each other are and what they what we do. But we hadn't, it wasn't like I'd read a um what she wants to present her to everyone. Yeah, her headline, her uh like her one sheet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I and and so that was great and we bonded immediately and it, it seemed we it seemed like we would get along and we did get along. And it was it was lovely. So there was like old school in that a friend invited us to a party. It wasn't like uh, I slid into the, her DMs and was like, "Hey, we should like you know, do it and stuff. Uh, I don't know if that's, if that, if that wasn't your husband. That was not an impression of your husband. Uh, I know. Um, but it, it, there was like that element of we kind of came pre-vetted. Like you can see who endorses right. people. And right. I, I, I like that aspect of living in a more digital era. And you guys live together and have a pug? We do. We live together. We got a chubby little pug. We got an old pug recently. Her name is Busy. Now, it wasn't before. What was uh, it before? It was Susie. But Susan is the name of someone in my girlfriend's life, like a family member. So we uh, ditched that. And busy is close enough. It, it's so weird. Just last night, I was thinking, how does that work when people change the name uh, if the dog has had the name for a long time? I think it's... How's it, Susie busy doing? I think if it's phonetically similar enough. Right. And she's also a pretty good dog in terms of like anything that we need her to respond to. It's just kind of like, hey, come here. <laughs> you know, it's not like... I'm not like, hey, are you even listening to me, Busy? It's like you don't even hear me when I talk to you. It's like I have dreams. <laughs> so it's uh, she does pretty well. But like I don't know that she would be super obedient even if we used her old name. Right. Um. And where do you guys live? We live in Brooklyn in Williamsburg. How do you like it? I like it a lot. We've only been there for six months or so. And I was in Harlem before that, and which mm-hmm. I also liked very much. But it's it was like a compromise for our work commutes. And so it's nice for both of us. And it's like a lovely place. It's kind of the first place I've lived as an adult where I'm like, this is the home that I want rather than like, this is a place I can live. <laughs> yes. That's so rife. So many apartments are just, this is a place I can live mm-hmm. as opposed to choosing a home. Yeah. And the last place I live, I mean, I enjoyed living in them, but it's I it's nice to not go, well, I have to have roommates financially mm-hmm. and I have to live in this place financially and I or, or for work. Um, and it's nice to go, we have choices and we will exercise those choices and, uh, and, and make the life that we want. Well, you mentioning roommates brings me to something I wanted to ask you. There's a hilarious story in the book that involves the band Kate. Oh yeah. Is that you or your roommate? No, that's Joe. Okay. That's so funny. The, I can give you the outline. I don't want to like tell his tale too much, but he, so Joe in college moved in with some friends and they they had been so psyched to live together and they had a celebratory first night where they all drank and got really drunk. And Joe <laughs> was like, I'm going to go change the music. There were big speakers that were in his room and he had been playing music from his room out into the common area. So he was the like, way in the book, the way he describes it is he thought, Oh snap. <laughs> yeah. He announced, Oh snap. Yeah. It, it's just very like that drunk thought of like, this is the important thing to do right yeah. now. Like guys, I got this. And so he went into his room, turned on the new album by the band Cake, which I forget what album it was at the time. Uh, but, but they're all... The one with long, short skirt and long jacket. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Put that you know, on repeat. The one where a guy sings monotone and there's trumpets. Like oh, that I love the album. description of it, too. That it was like, what do you... It's like... 
bluegrass band like meets a mariachi band oh, yeah. with an npr narrator i'm i'm it's, it's so great. much better the jo- way you joe is it. so yeah. funny i like i love reading the parts of the book that he wrote the first drafts of they're so fun uh and i it like really made me raise my game to be like oh, i gotta send joe good stuff too so he he turned on the cake album immediately closed and locked his door on repeat on repeat yeah a loop the whole album looping uh closed locked his door fell asleep with the music blaring. <laughs> they could not wake him. They tried for hours. I think in the middle of the night, he like woke up and turned it off. But there were like, he said he woke up and there were scuff marks on the door from them trying to kick it in and or like wake him up that way. And it was, just, he he said it ruined the entire year yeah, of he, living with them. He like, he thought that pretty soon they'd get to the point where they looked back on it and it was this funny thing, but they never got to that no, point. They never did. And it just like put a cloud over the whole year. That... It's hilarious. The other thing I wanted to ask, the pension Oh, story. that was him too. You? No, oh, that, that was, was also Joe. Joe actually was a lot more, I think, I generally feel about my own life like, yeah, it went fine. But Joe, like whenever we were writing a chapter, Joe would go, oh, I have a story. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, I've been there. And so the pension thing about going into a job interview with a literary editor. And answering honestly. <laughs> yeah. Which I usually have pretty good luck with. But I think that's that's like a big, that's one of those things that they tell you, right? Is like, be yourself. Be honest, because if they want you, they're they lying. want you. Yeah, I yeah, guess. That's like, I mean, sorry, go ahead. I, I think that's that's good advice for relationships right. more than it is for jobs. Yeah. Because it's a job, you don't want them to love you. You want them to pay you money to do work. Right. And that's totally different. Right. It's With- like, you guys, you, I mean, you kind of canvas it in the book. It's like, there's a certain level of being what they want that you should strive for for but you don't want to go too far afield or else i mean same as in a relationship like once you have the job if if you presented yourself with something completely that you're not yeah you're not gonna last long and you don't want a job that you don't that you'll hate right i mean obviously there are situations where it's like well i I need the money i'll do anything for to because i don't have a lot of options totally fair but like if you are interviewing it excuse me, three places and you just like lie your pants off at one of, right. the, one of the interviews and then you get this job that you had to lie to get because you're wrong for it and you don't have the skills and you will hate it. Then you just like, you just found yourself in a situation that's terrible and you did it to yourself. Right, right. Yeah, when I um, first moved to New York, I went there without a job, which a lot of people thought was a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know, it's hard to find a job across country when you're at that point in your life it's very hard that that's one of those pieces of advice that i think is like scared advice mm-hmm. of like make sure right. you have a job and it's like well how does anyone ever go anywhere then right right no i think that kind of stuff only ha- i mean i guess the people who studied consultant or econ in college and they get consulting jobs or they get recruited or something but Otherwise, I think it's like much further along in your career when all of a sudden some job that really wants you opens up or, you know, finds you across yes. the country and, and then they'll move you out and that kind of stuff. But so I went there without without a job um, and I was freelance writing, but it definitely took me longer to find my footing. Eventually, I was hired by time at New York. Um, but before that, I would look at Media Bistro, you know, Media yeah, Bistro. And there would be these jobs for like copy editor or... You know, something where it was like display copy was important. I don't even think I knew what that, that's headlines and mm-hmm. decks and things like that. I don't, at the time, I don't think I even knew what that was. And I would I would apply for all these jobs that looking back were completely not what I was good at. I was good at writing and editing eventually. Yeah. But, you know, I would would hope that somehow I could get these jobs that just because they were available. But I think usually the right job is the one you get. 
I think so. I, and I don't mean that like whatever you get is the right job. What I mean is when it's the right one for you, just like in relationships, then it's not so hard to attain. Yeah, I think I think totally for sure. I think if you're, I especially with personal relationships that like you don't want the one that you have to try really hard to make happen. Right. Like you don't like when someone. As I get older, the more the more I age, the more I look back on movies that I thought were super romantic as a kid, and just go, just just let her go, dude. <laughs> she she doesn't like you that way, and you're not going to convince her with a, a boombox or right. or showing up at a wherever. You know, it's like it, you, you screwed up. There there are other people in the world. I wouldn't say plenty of fish. You you've run through a lot of fish, and <laughs> fit, you. You've alienated a lot of the fish, <laughs> but there's there's still some. <laughs> right. Somewhere. So you're uh, in LA right now because you came out for the Emmys, right? I am, yeah. How was that? It's uh, Sunday. Oh. I don't know why. Oh, you know why? Because cre- I've seen the Creative Arts Yeah, Emmys the Creative happen. Arts Emmys. Right. And we were we had some nominations for that too, which mm-hmm. was very exciting. How was the Creative Arts Emmys? So that I viewed them from afar. Okay. So here's this is my experience. Uh, I managed the... So I was hired at Last Week Tonight to do social media and web digital, uh, original digital content. Mm-hmm. So I wrote videos for the web and I managed the social media and kind of like coordinated the stunt social media stuff we would do with the network and with web developers. And so I, I was like a coordinator and a creative person, uh, but I didn't, I don't code. Um, so that was what I was hired for. So I have, and I still kind of oversee that. I, I work with the the person who does like a little more of the day to day now. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, so I have the phone, my, the Twitter for the show is on my phone. So I forgot that the creative arts Emmys were happening. I, for some reason thought they were the next night. So I'm sitting at home with a friend and, uh, I get, I see an alert on the phone that says like last week tonight wins, uh, outstanding digital program emmy and so that was my experience with it i was just like sitting at home talking with someone and then found out that the show had won an emmy which was like that's so cool the best way to have that happen because i was not anxious i wasn't thinking about it i was just like it wasn't even on my radar that night at all i'm uh maybe if i'd known the ceremonies that night i would have had it kind of on a low hum in my brain but it was just like oh it doesn't you know it's it's nice to have been nominated but we i i liked to make the work. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't stressed about it. And so I just found out. Uh, and so my experience with the creative arts Emmys was seeing a picture of one of our editors, Ryan, who gave the speech. Cause he was the one, he was also nominated as an editor. So he was the one that was there and had to give the speech because he was the only representative of the show. Cause we had a show the next night. Uh, so it was him in a tuxedo, just like really animatedly giving a speech, but I just saw the still photo. So I didn't <laughs> know what he was saying at all. So it was just like a very kind of fun, silly, uh, it was like a delightful surprise mm-hmm. that um, it couldn't. It was it was ideal because uh, it came out of the blue. And, and again, I'm repeating myself, but there was nothing to be stressed about because I didn't know anything was happening. <laughs> right, and you're but you're going to the actual I'm, ceremony. I'm going Sunday, to the yes. yeah the prime time ones. Have you on been Sunday. before? No, this is my first time. So it's, I'm I'm excited. I think, but mostly I'm excited because it's a party and a, a neat thing to do. That it seems like it'll be an an interesting experience, and I get to hang out with my coworkers who I like very much, and uh, and you know meet fun people, mm-hmm. and, and so like the the award stuff is like, well, it's it's nice that people like the show, but I my biggest pride is like doing something that I f- working on something that I feel really proud of my input in and and what I hope to make. Mm-hmm. How did you start working there? So I was I just applied 
for late night shows, I don't know if people listening know this, but like for a, a lot of late night shows, what you do is you submit a packet of sample materials and then they look at it and say like, oh, this person's voice is something we need or they're interested in the same stuff we are. And were you submitting a packet to write on the show or I for was. the... Okay. Yeah. So there was no... Before I submitted, I don't think they even knew that there was this job. So I kind of made it through the ranks of submission, the submission process, and was asked to submit a second time and did that. And so I was up for one of however many staff, I think eight staff positions last year. Do you remember what was required in the packet? Uh, it was it was a lot of, because there was no show yet. It was a lot of stuff about like um, pick two stories that you find really interesting and like tell us how you would cover them, like what angle you would take on them, stuff like that. Um, and and it was like kind of extensive, like detail the this story. And how did you figure out how to do that, given that there wasn't a show yet? So I had so I had applied for um, Daily Show and Colbert also in the past. So I kind of used that experience of like, okay, this is and watching those shows too. Right. I think watching it, it's really hard to apply for something that you've never seen. Right when you don't quite know what the voice is going to yeah. be. Yeah, or even if it's something that exists in the world that you just haven't spent time with it's like really hard like it would be really hard to write a packet for um if if you were not a watcher of the tonight show with jimmy fallon it would be really hard to just guess what they like from the prompts what they would want right so this was a little challenging because it was in the dark but also the advantage was no one really knew what it was so i just kind of like used my experience having seen political satire for a long time and news-based satire uh, and and so I I did that and was that sorry I'm no, cutting that, you off no 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 I, was that before John Stewart had it was. hosted Daily Show oh John Oliver no it was after he That's hosted what I meant. John so they Oliver. they um no 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 I understand <laughs> not at all so they that was I think announced pretty soon after his hosting stint okay so you were able to see that yes so I know like you can see and you kind I'd, of right. I know John stand up so it's like. I know what kinds of things interest this person mm-hmm. and I know what kinds of things have been on the show he's worked on in the past. And so it was more conceptual. It was less like, well, the jokes have to take this shape because, you know, like certain, right. certain shows you hear a lot of like to, to, if you were asked to write a packet for Jimmy Fallon and didn't know thank you notes was a thing, it would be very difficult to generate thank you notes by accident <laughs> to like <laughs> right. have accidentally written a packet of like, Oh, I wrote these things. It's like joke. Thank yous to things like, Wow, that's what yeah, that's what we do. Oh, I didn't know it's just a thing I thought would be funny. <laughs> so I tried to give myself the best chance of um understanding what the, what this person's sensibility was and maybe what he was gonna try to create. Right. And it sounds like you did it pretty well. I guess so. So they they I, I think it I think it went well, yeah. So they staffed they had however many applications and they hired eight writers and I was kind of in the, the running for one of those final spots, I believe, and then I got called right after and they said, Hey, we have this weird um digital job we don't know exactly what shape it will take but <laughs> we would like we we know you have like experience writing for online media and like social media stuff i uh co-created a very popular parody twitter account which is uh modern seinfeld so it's like episodes plot pitches for episodes of seinfeld were it uh, to exist today mm-hmm. so they know that i kind of like understand how that world works more or less and so i came in doing that and then i, I did that for a year and ended up moving over to write for the show after season one. Were you um, always hoping to move over? Yeah, I definitely was. And But I was also really grateful for the job. I wasn't trying to spend that time auditioning for a new job. But I was like, well, the best thing to do is just to try to kick ass and, and do my best work. Uh, and not 
and not go, well, I wanted this thing and I have that thing, but so I'm going to like act like I should have this thing. I was just like, oh, I'm really grateful to be here. This is, it seems like a really exciting and special place to be at the beginning of something. And uh, something that I I really enjoyed watching like and, and kind of one thing that was great about my job last year was that I took a very pure enjoyment of the show mm-hmm. and I was really close to it and I would have to watch it once at um at rehearsal and then once at the taping and then usually I would watch it live if I had to do a social media thing along with it and I had like a very it, I I like the show and and I could enjoy it very purely not focusing on like oh, this thing I wrote didn't go great or like I didn't get a lot on the show this week. So it was a very nice um, training in appreciating other people's work. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really valuable. How closely do you work with John Oliver? He's, I mean, he's, we have meetings, little meetings with him every day. And uh, and if you're working on a longer piece, you'll have like more extensive meetings where you talk about uh, the shape of it and what they want from it. He and um, our executive producer, Tim Carvel. And, and so it's nice. I mean, they're very hands-on. They're, and which is uh, enormously important. I don't think, I don't think the rest of us could make that show without you know John and Tim's uh, input and guidance and like tremendously funny. Right? They're both so like I love their senses of humor as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know it's it's great to work for people that that I I will say it's great for me to work for people that I really admire and enjoy their work as much as like uh, they're not just they're not just bosses, but they're like comedians that I love you're from boston from boston yeah and you went to college at brandeis so just outside boston and then you moved to new york after that i stayed in boston for a few years i taught preschool for four years oh wow yeah is is that what you thought you wanted to do no it was not uh what happened was the reason that happened i that was always my side job so when i summers i was like an assistant at a daycare program a summer daycare program or some um camps mm-hmm. uh i taught elementary school spanish for two years while i was in college and i was kind of just looking at like jobs like capital j uh the biopic of steve jobs <laughs> no I, <laughs> I was looking at like which takes a beat oh no the book takes a beating in your book oh so yeah said, oh yeah. yeah that's so that joe wrote that run it's so funny and it's like so i it's to me there's something so funny about getting really indignant about something that doesn't matter like it was it was something about like you don't the the riff was you don't know someone until you live with them right and you live with them day to day and you see them every day so walter isaacson when he was profiling when he was writing the biography jobs about steve jobs didn't live in the same apartment as steve jobs (laughs) so it's a failure and we'll never know how good it could have been which is like so disingenuous to say like obviously that's not how we feel but it's so funny and then it pops up a few times yeah to call it back it's so funny to have righteous anger about something that doesn't inconsequential right to, to be mad about like we're not hurting his book sales we, walter isaacson is never going to read this and be mad at us or, or he is and that'll be hilarious too but uh, i think i hope he'll understand it's a joke but we I, so I was looking at jobs like my friends were looking at like oh i guess i'll work at an insurance company <laughs> or i will um you know, I'll manage a bank or just like, had you done any comedy writing? At this yeah. Point? So I started doing stand up when I was between freshman and sophomore year in college. Uh-huh. And I was doing improv and sketch in college too. And then like more and more in the city of Boston, like going Boston, Cambridge, going out a couple nights a week, kind of sneaking away around like homework and stuff and, right. uh, and going into the city. And so I had, I knew I wanted to try to do comedy and writing. But I still at that point kind of thought because I was a writing major that I would be maybe uh, like a fiction writer because mm-hmm. that to me was like the legitimate way. Like if you make a book 
and then it's on paper and then it will never not have occurred. Right. And, and, and I feel that like that's exciting about this book that I have, but there are also like other legitimate ways to create, uh, you know, to use writing to create things. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I hadn't really, I was still kind of like, well, I'll get short stories placed. And I found that really discouraging the idea of like spending three months on something, sending it somewhere with a six month waiting period, hearing no, or right? you right. can't submit simultaneously to other publications so you just wait and then all of a sudden that's like most of a year that you spent kind of hoping these were short stories yeah short stories what what were short stories like gosh there was one the one i read we did a reading for our thesis maybe this is my favorite one that it was the monologue of a um from the point of view of a high school hockey player (laughs) who was having an affair with one of his teachers and she said uh i think you should murder my husband so we can be together and then he tries to kill her husband and he doesn't Mm -hmm. so now they're just like in that the teacher's house and the teacher and her husband their house and he's just like mad and bleeding like he hit him with something and so it was like a darkly comic thing of just like oh man i thought this was gonna be the thing that like that made me you know that like that brought us happiness and now i'm just like in this horrible situation and like do we call she's like trying to convince him not to call the cops and he's like maybe we should call the cops like i did a bad thing he's just like a a kid that doesn't know better right and uh so that was like i read that at the thesis thing and i i was very proud from stand-up because like you know in stand-up there's kind of like a pride to being the headliner of a show in addition to it pays better uh-huh. but like when you're the person that people come to see and it's and you're the, the other people on the show uh have to lead into you because you bring something like bigger to the stage i guess uh and you're maybe the senior member but i remember being told like uh they, they had the schedule of the reading and then my advisor was like well josh has to go last because no one can this people aren't gonna listen to things after this and i felt like part of it was like because it was very pulpy and you know kind of um uh just more action-packed than a lot of the literary fiction that people are reading but also i took kind of pride like oh yeah people are gonna laugh and respond to this and that and that's what i liked i like the immediate feedback of like reading live more than i liked crafting an, an outline for a novel for a year before i even wrote a chapter right what appealed to you about that character and that storyline oh gosh i think i i I like people trying their best and like being misguided sometimes. I think that's really what I was into. Like people trying people trying their best and falling short is like enormously emotionally compelling to me or people trying really hard to do something that's not worthwhile. And, and I think that's like really tragic. And uh like the Inside Lewin Davis, which is not my favorite Coen Brothers movie, but I found it enormously emotionally resonant of like this guy is throwing his whole life away because he's almost good enough and that was like a really when i saw that movie the first time it was a really harrowing idea of like maybe i'm that guy maybe i'm the guy who uh i i was dating someone a different a different person at the time and what i maybe you know maybe i'm going out nights when i could be spending with my girlfriend be in in a vain pursuit of this this dream that will never be realized uh and i i think that's like a really um uh, brutal emotional story mm-hmm. where even though the practical stakes are very low i relate to it very heavily right um what are your parents like my parents are wonderful uh, i love them both very much they're both recently retired my dad worked in construction he's a glazer for like 40 years so he did glass uh, storefronts and things of that nature 
and my mom was in education, which is how I got. So I, I've, I've just been rambling. No, but, that's what that's what you're supposed to do. Not rambling. Great. Great. I'm talking. <laughs> so my mom was, when I was applying to these jobs, just like, oh, I don't know, I'll, uh, I'll work at a company that delivers things to restaurants and I'll be the one that decides what gets delivered where. <laughs> and like, uh, instead of that, my mom was like, well, you've always just like taught, why don't you take one community college education class and then you'll be certified as a teacher because you'll have the hours, uh, classroom hours already uh, retroactively and you can just be like a head teacher and, and you'll do that. You know, you like doing that. And I was like, yeah, that was a good idea. And this was wow, your voice was all over the place at that time. <laughs> yeah, it was just very day um puberty late onset puberty. I was um, twenty two. And this was while you were submitting short stories as well. Yeah, kind of the same period. And this, so here's like kind of the thing that, about my parents that's so lovely and supportive of like my weird um kind of long winding career and like unconventional career is that like maybe a year or two after I graduated college, my dad said to me he's like you know you always talk about writing and like you always want to read these things and like, you're doing a lot of comedy which is good and i see that that's improving and like you're improving at it but if this is the thing you want to do you should do this thing and you always talk about like submitting things to literary journals so he like gave me i think it was like 40 bucks give me 40 bucks and was like go get those like take this money and do that thing that you always say you're doing like i know like and i could have afforded it but it was kind of that thing of like this is the money for that. Go do that. And, and like, because this that's is the what, money for submitting for, no, for, for, yeah, for, um, no, for like buying literary journals and finding the ones that are a good fit that you think oh, okay. your work would be yeah. well placed in. And, and I thought that that was like such a, a lovely, generous thing to do more so than like, I think it's even more wonderful and, uh, emotionally than like if they had paid my rent, you know, cause it's more money, right. but it's like, take this small sum of money and and like use it to do the thing that you always talk about dreaming of doing mm-hmm. and, and that was that's like uh that was a really beautiful thing and i don't i i thanked them you know but i don't think i i don't know if i think them enough because that was <laughs> like that's so kind I, when they could have just been like well when are you going to stop trying to do this thing or like it seems like you don't really want to do this thing right that you say like you they were do. really encouraging and they're supportive. so encouraging and my I, my mom's big thing was always uh make sure you have health care so have a job that gives you health care and, and then do the other stuff on the side or if you're making enough money freelancing or whatever pay for health care mm-hmm. and that's uh that was her big that was her concern and so as long as i was doing that then I think she felt like things were going in the right direction. It's funny. My parents were big on me needing healthcare as well. And I I went the longest time where I was like, um, this just seems like a racket. I don't think I'm going to, cause when you're young, you don't understand. You don't under, like they would always talk to me about, um, just, you just never know. And if this happens, blah, blah, blah. And just all sorts of pessimism. Of course. But, uh, I felt like nothing's going to happen. We're throwing this money away every month. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if that's a young person way to look at it. It is absolutely how I felt for a while. I mean, when I was teaching, I we had a plan that I, I think paid into and they paid into. And, and I think that was just like, oh, that's what you do. Uh, and everyone kind of does that. And then when I moved to New York, I paid on Cobra for like the whole thing. which Cobra was like, is so expensive. It was so yeah. expensive. And then I think that coverage lapsed and I went like, it might have just been a few months without. And then I had to, for a work thing, I ran a Tough mutter, like one of those <laughs> obstacle courses, right. and you can't do it without health coverage. Uh, they just won't. Like, you have to sign an affidavit that says you have health coverage. So I got, like, the bare bones. Like, uh, if I if a saw cuts my arm off, I can go to the hospital. <laughs> That's part of Tough mutter, right? <laughs> the yeah, saw. there's the saw that cuts. You have to cut your arm off. 
and, and then reattach it. That's one of the obstacles. So, okay. So you were submitting to literary journals. Yeah. Did you consider Iowa Writers Program? And I mean, like, how I'd thought far about into stuff that like that. It, I, I just felt, I, I think I felt like kind of distant from that world because I, I think the stuff I wrote was like, it was just always, um, slightly too silly like slightly mm-hmm. too joke heavy to be like what i mean i think i could write a book with that tone a similar tone now having like worked as a writer for years but then i don't think i think it would have been a tough sell for me like with my skill set at that point to convince people like yeah this is like really the like what i do is i write things that are funny with like an emotional center Mm -hmm. uh but it was i think it was just too far on the funny side for for it to be like literary right and i i remember my advisor one time there was a a, there was a a story i'd written for my thesis where a kid's uncle marries his mother like a guy who's like in his 20s kind of like shambling around his father passes away and his uncle marries his mother and like thinks it's like kind of a hoot like call starts calling his nephew son Hamlet mm-hmm. steps on Hamlet I was gonna say as like, yeah so that's what he said he calls him Hamlet and like he thinks it's like the funniest thing and the kid is like you're the worst asshole and <laughs> and so there was this and they were just so in love like they were so in love after the death of the father and the mother and the uncle and they there was a line in the uh where the parents come downstairs like the, the this kid made dinner he like lives at home still he's like 25 but like does the domestic tasks at home because they're so grieving and in love and they come downstairs and they had clearly just like had sex and he, the kid goes god mom you smell like dick and my advisor was like that's too much and i was like i don't think it is <laughs> and like i was like that's the like that guy would say that uh, it was my belief. Right. So it was just always, and, and he was great. I mean, that might've been good advice that he gave me, and he gave lots of great advice, but I think I just pulled slightly too hard and, and that I found that my voice was maybe not exactly right for that mm-hmm. stuff. So you, uh, taught while also submitting and then at and doing what, stand-up too. And doing stand-up. stand-up. Yeah. At what point did you stop teaching? When I moved to New York. I, and I still tutored. That was like my side job because I, I didn't take I, – I was never going to take pride in being the guy that's like, I'm just a writer and a comedian. And they're like, well, you like live on a mattress on the roof of a CVS. <laughs> it was like, yeah, but like I'm a comic, you know? Right. So I had I had kind of stopped doing literary fiction at that point and I moved to New York. I was I started dating someone who lived in New York and I would visit her and then try to like do comedy around that. And then I was like, oh – I've accomplished most of the things in Boston that I would like to accomplish. And the bigger goals are things that are so hard to achieve from outside of New York or Los Angeles. Like writing for a show, it's so hard to get that process started when you're in a different city where the people that yeah. make those decisions don't see you or or know that you exist. So I moved in 2011 and I kept uh, – I have a tutor, I had a tutoring job where I moved from the New York uh, – the Boston office to the New York office and then I like ramped up my freelance writing. So I was doing more magazine type stuff. Like, Mathnasium? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> I love the name though. <laughs> uh, what was it? It was called Inspirica. Okay. It was like kind of a boutique company. It's New York, Boston, Philly. Mm. Uh, and I, I – they were great. I really – they were super flexible with my crazy schedule also. So I – was doing that and started writing. I was doing like, I wrote for a lot of women's magazines. I still do on the side. What ones? Uh, I've written a bunch for The Cut, the New York Magazine's uh, fashion blog. Mm-hmm. I'm, I wrote a lot for, I've done a bunch of stuff for L Digital, a bunch of stuff for Cosmo in print, uh, women's health in print. 
um, I think I'm forgetting one or two, but it's like, that's kind of my beat as being like the dude, probably I would say the straight guy who will kind of do these weird experiential things. That's a good beat to have. It's pretty fun. Do you know Tony Raimondo? No. Okay. He wrote for Sassy Mag. I think it was Sassy and then, no, maybe not Sassy. Maybe just Jane. Do you remember Jane magazine? Mm -hmm. Um, But he was that guy. Yeah. It's pretty fun. And then he went on to, I think now he works for like WWE magazine, if they have a magazine or something. Like he went in some other direction. Um, But yeah, he was, my favorite Tony Raimondo stories were like ones on that beat. It's really fun. I mean, I went to fashion, I went to a fashion week event last week Mm -hmm. and wrote uh, a, like a first time at fashion week thing. And I reviewed the show. How was it? It was I've never been fascinating. The so the the runway part was ten minutes long, and I was like, "Oh, this will be like an hour of people yeah. kind of walking." It was ten. Think minutes. of it like a show. Yeah, I, that's what I thought of it as. Because and that's what they call it. You know, it's it's a, right. a show. And uh, so you get in there and you file in a little late. And I was like, "Ah, fashionably late. That's <laughs> where that comes from." And you sit, and then there the lights go down and you worry that this is the part where uh some kind of batman villain comes in and uh tells you you're all about to die for the sins of capitalism like, i always worry about that i was very afraid of that uh, it just like <laughs> there was like techno playing and then it dropped and the lights went down and i was like right. oh here comes bane <laughs> like, they're just gonna this is it and, the, and then they the music comes back up and the lighting changes and they walk and uh, and, and then it's over and you go back out into the night and you're like, oh, I just saw some clothes I will never see in the wild. <laughs> what, which designer did it you see? It was Chromat, C-H-R-O-M-A-T. Yeah. And so it was actually like, it was more functional than I expected because a lot of it was kind of like super high-end wearable tech sportswear. Mm-hmm. So I was like, a lot of these are like bikinis, like, but they looked, they didn't look like you'd wear them to swim. So they're just kind of like futuristic, uh, workout attire. Right. And like tennis, futuristic tennis dresses and stuff like that. And who'd you write? And you wrote about it. And I wrote it. that for Al for their, their digital side. Gotcha. Yeah, it was I really bet fun. we know a lot of the same people, I think which we is do. a conversation to have off Yeah, mic. let's talk about that after. Yeah, because I've written for some of those places too. But you also have written for New Yorker and McSweeney. Yeah, so that's kind of where like my slightly literary ambition comes back <laughs> of like, oh, the New Yorker is a place that runs literary humor, whatever that means. And so I feel like that's more of a slot and i wish i'd thought to start doing that more mm. why uh, actually here we'll tie this together with the thing you just said uh, my, my friend Lindsay kaplan yes who you know from time out right yes she w- had a mcsweeney's list when we were in college and i was so jealous and i was just like that's the coolest she's the coolest person that i've ever met and i started I submitted a couple things in college and then got discouraged and stopped and then kind of restarted a few years later when i was on the door of moving to new york uh-huh. and uh because i was like well i gotta start doing things and so uh that that was the way i kind of channeled that impulse to like sit down and write something and like generate an idea and see it through to the end because i again i'm like really into fast feedback like is it good great is it bad tell me and then i'll mm-hmm. stop and so that's a thing that again that i like about the writing for the internet is that you write something and then you pitch it and then you find out within you know the new yorker even when i wasn't selling them stuff like when they were just saying no thank you (laughs) i would always hear back within a couple weeks three weeks maybe when they it says on the website it could be up to three months and then i would hear in three weeks like hey no thanks not a great fit and i was like cool and so i liked that about it that fast turnaround and then you could go okay next thing um because i like that better than the idea of like tinkering with a long big 
piece of work. Like, it seems so terrifying to me to write a 400-page novel that just gets rejected by everyone. Right. Like, what a, a, a nightmare. That's a kind of bent because I've been wanting to write a book forever. And I, I truly do feel I'm closer this time. Mm-hmm. But it's like, that's my thing is that I'm used to writing. I'm used to short things on deadline where you get paid right away. And so this like the daunting, sprawling thing, even though a nonfiction book, you don't write the whole thing ahead of time. But still, it's like a discipline that I find I sometimes lack. You could do, I think like a proposal, a proposal was kind of the biggest manageable thing that I could, could figure just out. Slightly outside manageable for me. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I, I totally feel that there's, there's just like a lot of moving parts to it. It's like I a- mean, it's not really actually, I do, I do feel this time that I, because it's like, because I, it's like finding that sort of unifying theme that's not gonna thr- gonna you know uh, suffocate it, but still allows everything. I feel like I'm I actually have that this time. So anyway, as like an essay collection, yeah. Um, there's more of a through line. I mean, it's more of a memoir, cool. but it's still like I think it should can't just be straight memoir. It's yeah. got to have some sort of mm-hmm. gimmick, but not gimmick really. So. Right, like a, a hook, like yes. a, a theme, a unifying theme. Exactly. Cool. Well, that's great. Thanks. But I'm still I'm still stuck in parts of the proposal. But that's the kind of thing where like what I would do, and I don't mean this as like, here's no, what please. I, I'm I successful need in everything. Advice, yeah. But it's like uh write one of the write a chunk and then try to get it placed somewhere. And that's like you know what I mean? And that right. is helpful, right? Like, oh, this is an experience that I could write about for Esquire and they would publish a four thousand word chunk online mm-hmm. or something. And then uh and that is so motivating for me, the idea of like oh, I can do something with this as opposed to like, well, here's 4,000 words. And now when I get three more of those, I can start <laughs> sending it out. Right. Did you guys do that with this book? With this book, we didn't end up doing it. We, we wrote the big proposal and then I, uh, for the previous book and then we wrote kind of a slighter proposal for this because they, they saw that we could like follow through on it right. and, and would do that. And how did you and Joe meet? We met uh, internet-wise. We actually met because we were both interested and, and a third friend were having like a Twitter conversation on uh, about writing a fake pickup artist guide and we were like well let's try this like let's hang out and have a beer and talk about this and see if this is a thing that we're both interested in mm-hmm. and uh and now we're good buddies did i'm jumping around here that's okay so, okay so you're writing for magazines living in new york then what so i'm traveling doing stand-up uh doing stand-up in new york kind of uh just trying to figure out what i'm doing like where i fit in what's my thing and it was fine. I had a very a pleasant life. But I again, I lived in a, an apartment with three other guys. All great. We had a lot of fun. Uh, but I was like, well, this is not forever. You can't, <laughs> you can't do this uh, when you're 55. Like, th- that's not a life. So I, what happened is like a couple of fortunate things happened that over the course of my like comedy and writing career where one was I won this stand-up competition festival in atlanta the year before i moved to new york and that kind of got me on the road a little bit so i could travel and do stand-up and work that way then um i was in new york kind of pervasively doing more and more freelancing which was great and then the modern seinfeld twitter took off very quickly and a friend of mine who had started working who had i produced a live show with who'd started working for a comedy manager and she was like well let's start working together i think like my boss will be okay with me taking you on as a client because you're you're doing things like you're making things are happening and and i think like it won't just be that we're pals it's that like we're pals and we work well together and there's work to be done 
So then I started kind of submitting to stuff. I ended up with, uh, a, I did a gig with a friend and her agent liked me and wanted to see some other writing and I started working with them. So that's how I got an agent. And uh, so I was just submitting, submitting, submitting to shows. So this was like late 2012, December 2012 is when the modern Seinfeld thing took off. And I started being in this realm of like people who are doing the work to do the work. So I mm-hmm. started applying to shows and uh, that like, in 2013, I did a little work for Billy on the Street, which was super fun. Uh, it's just like mostly from home. I like went in and talked with him about stuff and then just did a bunch of writing from home. Mm. And then uh, I did – and then I was just submitting for things and freelancing. I ran this Tough Mudder as like a corporate f- sponsored gig from through Wheaties. So like the cereal <laughs> sponsored me to do it. Um, and, and so just like weird gigs were kind of keeping me afloat for a while. And that was 2013 as well. And then – uh, and then I got my job at the very beginning of 2014, February of 2014. And I've been there, you know, uh, just over a year and a half. And it's wonderful. Do you know Jordan Morris and Jesse Thorne? I, I've met Jordan Morris and I know both of their work. Uh, I think that they, I could have this totally wrong, but I think maybe they did Tough Mudder maybe. as part of uh, – of something as well, but I could be totally wrong. I will look it up. I would. I will reach out to them about that because it's such a weird experience. So, I know there are a couple people I met who were doing Tough Mudder, and it was like a, a sponsored thing. Yeah. But it, maybe it was not them. It is. It's like but maybe it was. I had more fun doing it than I thought, and I was in the best shape I've ever been in because I just ran. I would just run in my neighborhood in Harlem, uh, like six days a week. I would just go running because I was like, I can't. I don't have enough time. Like I wasn't going to join a gym and just hit the weights really hard Mm -hmm. to do upper, you know, physical strength stuff. But I was like, I just want to get to the end of this thing. I want to get my body in the shape that it can get to the end of this thing. So I did. I would run like, you know, it started out like a mile and a half, two miles. Um, I I think the last run I did, my friend Tim, who had done one in the past, uh, Tim McIntyre, who's like a very funny Boston comedian, uh, had run a Tough Mudder recreationally. And he said, if you can do... If you can run six to seven miles and do 20 to 30 push-ups after each mile, you're in good enough shape to do it. And, like, there will be things that you're not good at, like swinging across ropes. Will I will never be good at that. Mm. But I just wanted my body to be able to get to the end without, like, sawing my arm off. Isn't there some, like, elect? Yeah. What is, the, what is so it? So there are there's two. Some... Okay. There's one where you crawl. It's, like, barbed wire and electricity that you crawl under. And it's, like, doable. Like, I don't think I got shocked doing that. I think you can get under there. It's just, but like, if, But if you mess up you get just a mild shock yeah 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 because at the end the last thing is like there's this mud like trench and bales of hay that you have to run through and you can navigate around the bales of hay which takes a long time or you can just kind of dash through but there are these dangling live wires and that uh it doesn't feel good i mean (laughs) maybe to some people it does i'm not here to judge what people are into right but it didn't feel good to me and what level of shock are we talking about like Hmm. Well, what are my options? Um, when you plug something in, but accidentally a little bit of your flesh is touching one of the it's prongs. about it's about that. Okay, yeah. So it's not terrible. But has like, everyone had that experience? Because as I was saying it, I was like, I'm the idiot who's accidentally nope, done I've that. Done that. Long, okay, long yeah, time ago. Yeah, same. I wasn't like, well, this morning I was plugging my computer. And was, <laughs> Whoa! Hey! Wow! Right. Every day. Why does this happen every day? <laughs> what am I doing wrong every time I plug there, something this in? This doesn't seem to happen to <laughs> other people. <laughs> and they seem to have found a way around it. Yeah. Um. That's a pretty, that's the only option that I know. That's the only, I mean, that or like just static electricity yeah, doesn't count. Uh, 
feet rubbed on carpet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was worse than that. Probably about like when you accidentally shock yourself like with a, an outlet. That sounds terrible. It was it was not great. No. But it was kind of I, I was happy to have accomplished it and to have gotten to the end of it. And it, it was neat. But and it was like that was like kind of a well-paying weird corporate gig that I did that year. And that kind of kept me afloat and let me not have a job during the daytime so that I could work on these show submissions. I probably did 18 to 20 in 2013. Did did you write about it for Wheaties? Like, how did that work? I blogged about it for Wheaties okay. and I wrote like a couple of pieces. Like afterwards, I did a long write-up for Esquire um, for their digital. And my editor for that, this dude, Joe Kiohane, uh, who's I think now at Thrillist, was like, Awesome. It was one of the most I wouldn't even know how to spell that last name. It's it's K E O H A N E. So I might have said it wrong. I don't I think I've read it more than I've heard it. Okay. So but he's great and he like edited so well that it, it was a real pleasure. It was like the longest it's until the book it was probably the longest thing I ever had published and it started at like 5000 words and then ballooned up to like 6100 and then shrunk back down to 4500 mm-hmm. and it went in their tablet publication um and then later went fully on just the website and it was um it looked really great. There were a lot of photos from the um, company that they let us use. And, and it was really cool. I, uh, I was happy for the experience. Do you have a favorite thing you've written? Gosh. Oh, that's a great question. Um, hmm. Man, I really need to think about this. Oh, you know, one of the things that I like the best was I wrote this. I wrote this piece um in late 2013 so late 2013 which is when i saw inside lewis davis it just felt like a bummer was kind (laughs) of things seemed like they were going to happen and then didn't happen and and then eventually did but when i was in the period of not happening do you ever feel like oh this means it will never happen yeah yeah so i was there i was i had booked a late night set on a, a tv show and then i got bumped because my set was uh too dark and allegedly, which I I don't do especially um, grim comedy. Right. I'm a pretty upbeat fella. Do you not say what show it was? I, I can say. Uh, it was uh, W. Kamau Bell's show. Okay. And and it was like a network decision to bump me. So it wasn't like anyone at the sh- – the sh- people at the show were very lovely mm. about it uh, and, and kind about when it happened. And then the show was canceled before like we could figure out some other way for me to – be involved so that was a bummer and and so that was like really disheartening i was like oh this little thing is going to happen and it and it will even if it doesn't change my life it will signify that more is possible Mm. and then it was like nope it's not even the thing that i thought was not more is not possible (laughs) uh and then i so i wrote this piece that i pitched to the new yorker and they had i think initially they had preliminarily accepted it and then it kind of got squashed late in the game because there were some concerns about the darkness of it because i was in like a, a kind of an How unhappy dark place. were you? Well, this, this was point. really dark. This okay. pe- the the other stuff was not, but this thing I like. I remember sitting down at, at my computer with the thought, like, I'll show him fucking dark. And I wrote th- <laughs> this. I wrote this piece that was based on the new. Um, it was the uh, the new Call of Duty was about to come out, and I was thinking about it. And I wrote this piece called uh, Call of Duty Homeland, and it was a guy pitching the uh, his the next installment right like this game it's only gangbusters we need the next thing this is the biggest franchise uh and it was just a um the experience of a returned uh veteran who is back uh in the united states living their regular life and just like trying to make it as a person so it was like really dark and i'd run it by people who are in the military for like is this respectful is this disrespectful And, and i'm really like happy with how they came out and so it ended up they the new yorker um 
was like, oh, we, my, uh, we're, this is not actually for us. And I was like, I was just like, oh no, it's nothing's ever happening. Nothing will ever happen. Cause that's how I extrapolate. Mm-hmm. And I ended up sending it to McSweeney's and they were like, I, I was like, I know this is really dark, but like, I feel I'm really proud of how it came out. And so I kind of, I feel proud of like how I stuck with it and like believed in it. And I mean, like my, my dad sent it to a, a friend of his who had served in Vietnam and he's, and that like really hurt me. He was like, oh yeah, my buddy says that it will, he thinks that guys who have served would like, that they would feel like this represents the well and this is like a good thing in the world. And I was like, good, that's what I want. I'm not like trying to make fun of post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. I'm trying to like, the you know, it's the satire about the, um, the brutality of these games and how it that you don't see the the fallout and and so I feel I felt really happy about that and McSweeney's ran it yeah and they they were really cool we actually tried it a couple different ways as like copy on the box of the game and like it just ended up that the original thing of like guy pitching it which is like you know kind of a formula that's been done before guy pitches thing in room written as monologue mm-hmm. but uh, it was kind of the way it made the most sense and moved the best I'm gonna have to go find it thank you uh, well, I hope you enjoy it thank you. Let's take some questions that came in over Twitter. Please. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay, Oliverist says, what is the process for last week tonight like? How long do you get to work on a main piece? And how many people work on a main piece? Cool. So the main stories take a, a few weeks generally to materialize, and it's um, two staff writers, and then John and Tim, and uh, there's a, a research person, and then a, a footage uh, a segment producer. And so I, uh, and then there's like obviously there are so many other people. There's editors, and if there's a produced element, there's field producers. But there's like kind of a core team that starts of like, I guess it's like six people. And, uh, and so those, those take a couple of weeks and, uh, to see through from beginning to end. Star Obaba says, I'm going to Starbucks. Do you want anything? No, thank you. I think, uh, that would be difficult to coordinate from the past. But if you had wanted something, what would it have been? Uh, I would get, uh, as big a nice coffee as they have, um, with milk. And that's probably what I get now. Okay. I think that's my thing. Now. All right. Oh yeah. no, she twiddn't said. Allison, why do I have Josh's phone number if he's going to make me talk to him through you from now on? Well, I didn't make anyone do anything. <laughs> I tweeted, if you have a question that, you're af- that you've been afraid to ask me uh, directly, you can ask through Allison. So, oh, no, she didn't. Uh, you can continue to use my phone number if you have it, which I th- I, she does. Jordan Handren Seavey says... What was your favorite Chinese restaurant in Boston to do stand-up That's at? That's a very funny, specific question. Uh, and it's the the comedy studio in Harvard Square above the the Hong Kong restaurant. And the, Boston has like a weird history of comedy in Chinese restaurants with the kind of the uh, flagship one in the past being the Ding Ho, which is now a Mexican restaurant called Olay. I just uh, watched the, a documentary. The Barry Crimmins yeah, documentary. Lucky with yeah. a lot of... Ding ho footage yep. and discussion. Yeah, it's. I mean, there, there's also a a separate a lot of ding ho in my life lately. <laughs> After there having been none, none for yeah. years, and now it's zilch ding ho, and now it's, it's just, saturated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's there's another documentary about the the Boston comedy scene in the like late seventies, early eighties, and that that's a lot of ding ho stuff too. And that's uh, it's called when stand up stood out, and it's like a very kind of fun, pleasant 
look maybe it's more fun for me having been in that scene mm-hmm. and like knowing a lot of these people but it's uh it's pretty fun and you hear like a lot of kind of old inside baseball comedy stories from boston and it kind of one of the central points is stephen wright doing his first tonight show appearance and they show footage from that and it's just like oh neat it's it's nice to feel like part of uh like part of something like part of like it's a family it's like a very supportive uh scene and there are lots of wonderful people working there either coming up through there now or working still there that i that i know from when i started and uh what was i saying about gosh the dingo the oh Stephen wright and i got to open for Stephen wright a few years ago which was like super exciting and he was the nicest and i uh sat at the side of the stage and just like watched his whole i think he did like an hour 15 and i was just like this is amazing like i was so thrilling it was this lovely theater in uh, northampton massachusetts it was great who were the comedians that you were a fan of when you decided you want to get into comedy well when i started i mean i kind of i didn't get too deep into it before i started i watched i i loved the i didn't realize how much i liked comedy like i didn't realize it was a thing that i liked in art stand-up being an art form that i really enjoy uh, digesting as well as producing right so but i remember like really loving mitch hedberg's comedy central half hour and having like old i had an ellen degeneres cassette <laughs> and when i was younger and a like a jeff fox or the you might be a redneck which i think for a long time was the best-selling comedy album of all time and uh, I mean, like this. This is a much more fraught thing to say now, but like Bill Cosby records, mm. and then uh, when I started, it just became Boston people, like people that that I would see around, like Mike Kaplan and Joe List, who were guys that were like a little bit above me, uh, had started a little bit before and were working, and I was like, oh, these guys are really funny, and then guys like uh, Tony V. And who's a, a, a guy who's worked in Boston for a long time and acts and things and. Uh, super super wonderful and uh and then like people who would move but would come back like john fish gary gullman and then it kind of broadens out to like oh mike berbiglia is from here and comes through once a year and was running his one-man show like the show that became the movie sleepwalk with me i saw that like very early on because he would come back to boston and run it like four times in a weekend and i would just go and be like well this is amazing and so i really liked that the the stuff that was kind of like homegrown Mm -hmm. um and there are so many people that are working with that I'm, that I'm friends with from when I started that I'm just like, when I go back, I, I always try to make sure that like I'm on point and I'm not trying to be like, yeah, I'm a guy, I'm back. And like, you guys owe me things and like to the audience, you know? And I, uh, cause I really want to like raise my game for like friends like Dan Bulger and Lamont Price and Kelly McFarland and, uh, Sean, um, do you say Sean Sullivan? He's, you did not say and Sean Sullivan, Andrew Mayer, like those folks that it's just like, Oh, they're so funny, and I, um, I'm like really, I'm a person that's very inspired by like peers. Mm-hmm. And lastly, Adam Socloff says, and I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, for last week tonight, do hosts' political sensibilities always trump writers? Example: Stuart Wyatt Cenac Tiff, which I was not even aware of there being a John Stuart Wyatt Cenac Tiff. Is this a well-known thing? I don't know. I think that I guess there was a story that was told on uh, Mark Maron's podcast about a disagreement they'd had. I don't know all the details. I can't really speak to that, but I can I can answer. I think the question in in my experience, which is, I, I it ultimately comes down to like what John thinks is the story that, or the or the joke or whatever or the fact that will be said on television. But I think I work for people that are like enormously invested in doing 
good work and, and doing and doing their best job. And so I think I I found them always very open to like hearing sincere concerns. Uh, and so like I don't know if the the host's political views trump that of the writers. I mean, I guess, I, I guess, yeah, it comes down to what what he feels like he can stand behind because he's the one on TV saying the words. But I, I, I found them like really, um, they want to hear um, voices of like, I, I wonder if this would be better this way. Whether it's a wording thing or just like, um, oh, I wonder if this person might take this joke this way. I'm like, oh, thank you for raising that concern. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I, I and that it's nice to feel like very heard in that regard. It sounds like a really healthy, good workplace. I find it. As Please such. don't do that thing when we turn this off and you tell me it sucks. No, I won't. That's I happened promise. to me before. No, I swear. <laughs> I'm, I'm not like, like I, that would have been the better story no, when I'm the not, mics were on. <laughs> I'm not painting a rosy picture for the sake of it. I mean, like, obviously, every job has challenges, but like, the, I'm very fortunate to be at the one that I'm at. And it's uh, I'm it's very like satisfying to get to work for. And it's it's fun. Uh, and, and and again, everyone there is so talented and such a like a kind, good person to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've heard that from um, people who work with John Oliver at the Daily Show that he's just so much fun to work with. It was a, a field producer mm-hmm. who had said that he they, he loved working with John Oliver because the stuff he comes up with is just hilarious. He's so funny. Uh, I mean, like his stand up is also great, and he's really funny off the cuff doing a little Q and A before every taping, and like he's just such a funny guy, and he's funny like you know, in the room, like when we are, we're in meetings and it's like, oh, this is, like, this is, he's like a guy. He's not like a, a suit and a face that reads smoothly from a teleprompter. He's like a guy with thoughts and ideas and, uh, and like a zillion jokes. He's just super funny. Okay. Let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Rich Bryant says, in my glove compartment, I actually do have a pair of gloves. I do not. That's not a common thing. I don't think it is. Maybe, maybe. Nope, not even. I was going to say maybe in winter. And I was like, nope, I get in the car wearing the gloves in the winter. Yeah. Jeff? I have a pair of gloves in my car, but I don't keep them in the glove box. I keep them in the little uh, side door thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Much easier to access for the driver. Yeah, getting them out of the glove box. That's too far. What if you had a boot in your boot or a bonnet in your bonnet in (laughs) England? That I like that. That's like a um, Children's that's like a doctor, a Doctor Seuss, like walking <laughs> yeah. in my pocket. That's exactly what I was thinking. Right. Bruise, what if there's a do you do you actually keep a wasket in your basket though? <laughs> Bruised by Dawn says, "Just mirror everyone will not sleep in a public space, airport, plane, bus, etc." Hashtag lack of trust. I don't think that's lack of trust. I think that's uh, good looking out. I think that's smart. I, my sister and I were in Europe many years ago. And I got some kind of flu where I swear to God, the main symptom was fatigue. I could not stay awake. And we were on the metro, which is their public transportation, and I would just want to doze off. And she kept shaking me awake, being like, you can't sleep on public transportation. You can't sleep on public transportation. And the only sweet vindication I have, which actually speaks to me an evil person, was that then she and her friend who we were meeting up with came down with whatever I had and they wanted to sleep everywhere. And I, I, I have pictures of them, of us all hanging out in the hotel room. Cause at this point I was fine and they were just passed out asleep. Of course it was safe there. Anyway, the point being, I don't think anyone should sleep on public transportation. I, 
I especially not if you're alone. I think that's like a very reasonable fear. But I think if you're with a a buddy or travel partner, that's like totally. Excuse me. Totally fine to um yeah. to to do as if there's someone watching over you. Actually, I need to recant part of my statement. I think sleeping on a plane is fine. Definitely on a plane, but that's not public transportation, right? But I would I would be more I would more sooner sleep on a plane than in an airport. Yes, right. Uh, yeah, because in an airport you have to watch all your bags and everything. There's yeah. just more that seems that could happen to you. I don't definitely. And no more one could really. I'm sure someone will prove me wrong, but. No one can really mess with you on an airplane. I mean, yeah. the, everyone's well, right, and no one. Will, I mean, like I've I've never heard of someone being raw, like mugged <laughs> on an airplane right. while they were asleep. Yeah. B. Slammon says, "In waiting rooms, I put a magazine down. I'm done reading. If someone grabs it, I feel like it's mine, and they should ask me." Ooh, I I understand that feeling. Yes. I do. I I don't know if I have it exactly the same, but like I will say that is not that is not out of bounds. You? Right. Um I I get that. I don't have that specific one, but I just had a memory uh when I was young going to the public library which is a dated reference. <laughs> I mean I'm sure some people still do. No, it was a children's library and I bought I brought these note cards and a bunch of markers and I was going to um do my art at the children's I don't know what I was doing. I was just doodling or whatever at the children's library. Uh and I was sitting there at a desk and then I remember this girl and like her younger brother came up and she was like, "Here, draw." And she started handing him cards and markers thinking they were public cards oh, and public sure. markers. But I didn't say anything, but I thought, "No, I brought those." I you know what I would think? This is exactly your story. Uh I would also have let that Howard just be like, okay, well, maybe yeah. maybe they're public now. Right. <laughs> I don't know the rules. <laughs> but when I, if I put a magazine down in front of me at a waiting room and someone takes it, I wouldn't go like, that's mine. They should have asked. But I would go, if they were nice, they would have asked. Yes. That's what I would think. I would go, because I would ask, okay, hey, are you done with that? Especially if they saw me put it down. Right. Yeah. And so that that's not it. I wouldn't go, it's mine. It's not about like belonging, but it's about like, well, come on. Let's, we live in society. Like, right. Let's... Yeah, there, it, it is weird. You don't really want to pick up a magazine when it's still warm. No. <laughs> Magazines and toilet seats. Exactly. And I, I feel like people are more territorial with newspapers, too. Whatever yes. it is with magazines, it's just a little bit more for newspapers. Right. Newspapers... Go, are you done with this section? Can I read that? And, and there's almost something distasteful about a newspaper having more than one pair of eyes on it. Yeah, it seems like it's it's, it's made for one person. Yes. It does seem like it's made or like a a, the, a family maybe right. a, a, for a family. Right, a household. Yeah, a household. A one one per household. <laughs> and because yeah, it's so weird like when I see if I see a magazine in a waiting room I'm like I'll read this magazine, but if I'm if I'm like in a cafe and someone had left behind a newspaper and I'm at that table, I'm like, "Ugh." Yeah. I don't want Is it, it cuz it's more grimy and porous? It might be. I mean, the ink will come off on your hands. Yeah, I think it just seems more ephemeral because of that just because right. it's less sturdy yeah or it's like you when you're done with it you throw it away yeah. <laughs> get it out of my sight yeah. this works for one day only and yeah. that's it right right uh, unless you're trying to trick someone that you kidnap them at a certain time exactly get rid of it james leroy wilson says i pick my nose always privately but never was told the less gross option when the situation in the nose is suboptimal does everyone just pick their nose? I would say yes. I think so. I don't even understand the question. Is, <laughs> is he saying that you shouldn't you shouldn't pick your nose? I think he's saying or don't or just do it privately. No, he's saying 
just me or everyone, I pick my nose. And and nobody ever told me, like, people, it seems like he's been shamed for that, but has not been given an alternative. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the thing, like, kids are really into picking their noses. So I think that's the thing that parents do where they say, like, because kids just want to do it all the time yeah. and in public. Right. So, I, yeah, I think it rubs off that it's a bad thing. But, yeah, what else are you But I actually, I, re- I relate to this. So th- that is my question and his question. Does everyone just do it? Because I will admit, I've always had sort of a secret shame about it, especially, okay, this is disgusting, but I'm married, so who cares? Especially if it's been like a real long day. For example, if you've been at a festival or something, I'm not talking about Bumbershoot. These are South by Southwest memories. It's been a real long day. And so finally, you're alone with yourself at the end of the day. And it's like, you got to make up for lost time. And and this is super disgusting. And I'm sure everyone can relate because this, I have to think, happens to everyone. If you're in a particularly like dusty kind of environment, sure. then it's like, oh wow, new colors. Yeah, and, and, and uh, it's horrible. And then what else do you? You can't. You can't use a. Uh, you can't blow it out. No, you can't. I. But I, I think growing up, I always figured less disgusting people did blow it out. I feel like they must have very powerful, efficient noses. Right. I. Uh, I think as long as you wash your hands. That's like the thing. It's like making sure your hands are clean. Because otherwise it's like, yeah, what do you do? I remember somebody telling me when I was a kid that you, it was okay to pick your nose, but you were supposed to put a Kleenex over your finger. Or the next Jewish wedding night. (laughs) But what would happen if you just didn't? Right. Didn't ever deal with it. Right. Like if you you went out of your way to not pick your nose for a month. Yeah, that's way grosser. That's so gross. But would would it just build up until your nose was closed or would they get big and then? I think Fall they would out. just start falling out. Oh, that's super yeah. You don't gross. want that. It's that's funny how gross. that's the most disgusting thing of all of it. Just a me- just an untended nose. Yeah, yeah totally. Just a, the nose gone feral. <laughs> well, what do people do if they've broken all their fingers? Hmm. hmm. Maybe they have someone to attend for them, or they have a device. <laughs> A little bamboo, a bamboo stick. Right. A nose valet. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm sure someone in a Wes Anderson movie has had one. Bruised by Dawn also says, even if I'm planning to spend all day working in the yard, I'll shower and shave before heading to Home Depot for supplies. Um, I don't have that per, per, that specific one, but I know I know that that thing of like, I'm just going to be out for ten minutes, and yet I feel compelled to shower and be presentable. But I also know the other one of like. I don't feel the need to shower and be presentable. I'm just running a quick errand. I'm gross. Yeah, I think it goes I think it goes both ways for me. I'm very erratic. My showering has very little to do with what I'm going to do and very much with like how I feel. Yeah. If I'm like, "Oh, I can't even be around me right now," then I'll shower. Uh, and you know, I shower most days. That's not the only time I shower. <laughs> but if uh if I'm like, "I hey, didn't shower yet today and I have to go out and get coffee before I come home and do some stuff." Like, that's fine. Totally fine. And I feel like it has uh, it can have a chicken or the egg effect after a while where for me, the only times that I really don't shave is if I'm super tired or if I'm super sick. And then if I just say, oh, you know what? I'm just going to take it easy today. I'm not going to shave. Then not feeling not shaven makes me feel lousy. Yes. It's like, yeah, it gets turned around. Right. I will. I shower way more when I'm sick. Oh, really? Yeah, it makes me it makes me feel so much better, just like the warm water. So I'll shower maybe twice in a day if I'm if I'm feeling. You feel like you've accomplished something. Yep, yeah. you, it's like the one thing you can do for yourself, and like it feels physically a little better. And you're like, well, check that off my to do list. Uh, bathed, gross body, so I'm presentable for humans. 
It is weird though. Like if I'm not feeling well and putting off showering, even though I know I'm going to feel better, the more I put it off, the more I put it off, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what you're saying. Once, once you get over a certain hump at that time in the day, you just say, well now, now I'm just rolling it over to tomorrow. (laughs) Right. I I do a lot of afternoon showers on my days off because I work a weird schedule. So I'm off Mondays and Tuesdays. So like I'll get up and walk the dog and hang out. It'll be super gross and sweaty out and, uh, I won't necessarily want to shower. It won't make sense to shower before I leave the house. Or maybe I'll be under the illusion that I'll go to the gym later. Uh, and so I'll be preserving that illusion by not showering already. Uh, and then, like, I have to go out for shows or, like, meet my girlfriend somewhere. And uh, and so I'll shower at, like, 6 p.m., which is weird. I always feel like I'm getting ready to go out and solve a crime. <laughs> yeah, I had a really weird shower schedule. So I recorded a podcast yesterday, so I showered before the podcast. And then I went to the gym last night, and I normally go in the morning, but I went last night. So I came home and I showered, and I was like, this is shower number two today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then today, I showered before this podcast, because I did the treadmill for half an hour, but realistically, I did not break a sweat. Okay. I've, I've mastered, no, the treadmill, excuse me, the bike, oh, where sure. you can, like, I can go really slow. Mm-hmm. I can basically accomplish a lot of like tweeting while I'm on the bike and stuff and I and that even that shower I was like I, this is an unnecessary shower because I showered last night and all I did was sleep but still I couldn't bring myself to not take that shower I don't know why it's just at that point I'm like this is not even I say most of my showers are like that. I'm not really washing off anything it's more just a, it's like to it's make a, myself feel it's awake a reset, or clean. like a psychological yes. reset like when I because the other thing about it is after you shower you put on clean clothes and then mm. I'm like well I gotta do something now like I went from basketball shorts and a t-shirt that I could wear around the neighborhood if I had to do something to like well I showered so I'll put on jeans and a button down and like all right well the day has started it's it's dark out but the day has begun right here's what i this one doesn't flummox me as much but i know that i used to spend time thinking how do people deal with this if you're a person who likes to have coffee first thing in the morning um and likes to wake up that way as opposed to waking up by taking a shower and getting dressed and everything but you're in a hotel that doesn't have any coffee and someone in your party is like we can just run out and get coffee in the morning. Well, do you shower and everything before you go out and get coffee? Or do you just go out, gross, get coffee, come back and shower? It just seems like a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's For me, it's a timing thing. It's like, well, are we going to stay out after we get coffee? Then I guess I'll shower now. Or if it's like, we, um, I guess it's close enough. But no, I would probably shower first. Right. Because otherwise you're like, even if they have coffee somewhere in the hotel, then you're going in your pajamas and you're that person. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I... I don't. I try not to be that familiar in a hotel. Right. I don't want. I don't want people being like, "Does he own this hotel?" <laughs> He's very casual. He's wearing a robe like it's his weird Ramada in Playboy Mansion. Exactly. Did you know that a Ramada is a a real thing? It's like an overhang or I something. I didn't know that. My husband lived in an apartment with roommates where they had a Ramada, and I was like, "That is not a thing." And he tried to explain to me multiple times what it was. He referred to it as if it's just a thing that everyone knows. And I don't remember. It's like, it's not, are you looking it up, Jeff? Okay, I forget what it is. It might, it's like an awning or a um, carport, but not. According to the internets, it is an arbor or porch. Oh. A porch? I did not know. We have I thought so it many overhung. words for that before Ramada. Yeah. And 
I. And why would you name your inn after that? I mean, I guess if all the rooms had balconies, but I don't think that's the, what they do. I don't think so. Mm-mm. That's a false advertising that that I wasn't even aware of. No. And by the way, a balcony is a thing that is appealing, and yet I spend very little time on them. We have a we have a balcony in our apartment, and it's the size of like you could. We have a table and two chairs, and that's about what you can fit. And I forget that it's there. Right. Um. And uh, my girlfriend uses it sometimes. She'll go and read and bring the dog out. Uh, and then the, our good. our dog uh, hates everything outside our apartment. She she hates places and loves people. Aww. So we have a friend staying with her at our place for the weekend, which is very very nice of my friend Betsy to do. But she um, does she not like going on walks? She likes she's okay with walks, but she gets very like breath heavy, like a pug does, and starts uh. beatboxing. <laughs> but she hates like when she's inside. She hates everything outside, and she'll just bark at anything. Mm. And so we have to keep the blinds closed, like Emily Dickinson. Yes, we have one of those. Mm-hmm. We have an Emily Dickinson. And then she, but she also doesn't travel well. So like, if we have to go somewhere, it's like a real ordeal of like Xanax two hours before we leave, and then like she has to sit on someone's lap in the car. She's just so she's so anxious. What does the Xanax do for her? It doesn't seem like much. Okay. Yeah, because one time we gave Wendy Benadryl for traveling because the vet was like, you know, you can give her Benadryl or Xanax and I had – or we bought Benadryl. And it did It did not – it didn't even take the edge off of anything. I was like, this is not affecting her at all. That's – that's uh, busy is very much like that. She, okay. I mean, it, maybe it made it better, but like it's so hard to figure out what the control group is for right. this experiment. But she's still like – even with drugs, she's like very – antsy i was thinking maybe she'd just go to sleep like right i was hoping yeah but the she she can uh my dog is so neurotic that her anxiety fights right through the xanax which (laughs) that's how when people say like well you you nurse are jewish is your dog jewish now i have to say yes (laughs) she's like more anxious than drugs can cure do you know what the story with her was like why she was um, yeah, she. So we, I got, we got her from just a person, and she had lived with elderly people who were, went into assisted living. Oh, and then she was handed off to like a friend of the family who had to find a home for her. Do you yeah. think she misses her owners, old owners? Do you think she's even aware of it? I, that's the thing Ooh, that's you're breaking of, my heart. I know. Sorry. This podcast take, no, that's okay. But the thing with dogs and animals is that they live in the moment. Mm-hmm. So it's so upsetting to us this idea of rehoming or some new people coming and taking the animal. But I wonder to them, do they even like they must acclimate so fast to new people? That being said. My husband was just traveling for work, and I swear Wendy missed him. I think that she, I think that our dog likes routine. So, like, moving was hard because it was like new people, new apartment, new times of day that things happen. And then, like, if one of us is away, the routine changes a little bit. Right. Uh, but uh, I think she, yeah, I think she is, lives in the moment. She's like happy. She's like, I got food. I got, uh, I got some couches to choose between. Um, I've got traffic to yell at. I'm a happy pug, <laughs> right? an anxious happy pug. And Nick says, I know I don't own the street, but can't stand when someone I don't know constantly parallel parks in front of my house. Yes. Oh, oh it you're depends. Like that? It depends. Here, no, because it's it's LA and I feel like it's just sort of, you know, well, it's and also because we're not in a house that we own, mm-hmm. but I could see where, like my parents live... Where my parents live, it's sleepier 
and there's more options. And I know that they'll begin to be like, why is, I mean, there's not a lot going on in the suburbs where they are. So it's like, wh- they can really focus on like, why is that car always there? Why don't they park in front of their own house? Yeah. Oh, you know what? I agree. I, 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 you brought me around because my parents live in the suburbs and I think it would be intensely weird if someone parked directly in front of their house. Right. Uh, that was like, I mean, unless like the neighbors were having five family members over from out of town, then you're like, oh, I get it. Um, but that would be intensely weird, but like in a city, it's, you know, right. that's who cares? Even even if you have your own home, like it's all just street parking. Right. How do you feel about this, Jeff? I know that people get bent out of shape about it, and I know that in the suburbs, it's generally considered rude to park in front of somebody else's house. But there's there's someone that I do business with in this city that he has told me not to park in front of his neighbor's house because they give him grief every time somebody parks in front of their house. And it's a place with not a lot of parking. That makes sense if there's not a lot of parking. But they don't own it. Yeah. Yeah, and it I find it I find it annoying. The other city parking I will I'll bring up is uh coming from New England is like when you dig out a spot. Oh yeah, that's, that's yours. Yeah, that's big in Philly too. Like yeah. people will put lawn chairs out. Oh yeah, cones. Yeah, cones. Uh, yep. They I think in Boston they like recently made it. They like you're like don't do that. And people were, they lost their minds. They were like, nah, I've always put out a chair. I'm going to put out a chair this summer. This winter. This summer summer chair. I'm going to put out a chair this winter. Uh, this, I, the, people get like, the, there will be like, every year there will be a story of like, guy fights person for parking in parking spot. With the, and, and then they're like, like uh, the report for the police was like, I shoveled it, dude. <laughs> like, that's the whole police report. Did you have a Boston accent at one point? It's I, I had a slight one. Uh, and it I comes out when I'm watching sports or in traffic, <laughs> and I'll just be like, "Are you kidding me? Come on now, <laughs> like seriously, dude?" <laughs> Did you have to work to lose it? Yeah. Well, so the big thing was when I went to college. Even though it was in Massachusetts, there were a lot of people from out of state, and I stopped saying "wicked," <laughs> uh, which I it comes back sometimes. I like am trying to make a more concerted effort to actually say it now because I think it's like a a, a local a localism that I like mm-hmm. and. I don't think it's wrong or bad, and I uh, and and I feel like a little guilty for like kind of scrubbing away the rest of the accent. But in college, people would make mercilessly make fun of me, like it's wicked what, who's wicked which, and it's just like, come on, man, you you guys know this is where I'm from. You can't. Uh, but that that got like beaten out of me. Do you feel authentic when speaking now? Because I know when I moved to New York. Uh, I continued to say horrible instead of horrible. I continued to say inline instead of online. Mm-hmm. I continued to say orange instead say, of orange. I say inline too. I think online doesn't make any sense, especially because online is a totally different thing now. Maybe getting online is just – yeah, it is. But maybe it's just a New York thing. I hear, I mean, I hear it in New York all the time. Yeah. yeah, in New York. But I at a certain point, I was like, I could, I could just switch. I could just say horrible and orange and online. But that felt inauthentic. Yeah, I try to say I try to like say things the way that feel right unless there's a problem communicating. So then speaking without your Boston accent, does it now feel normal? Yeah, and it cuz most of it was like slight and kind of went away and I don't get like mad or weird or embarrassed like when it happens, but it definitely like I feel it attached to like those emotions where like I am less managed about things, but it's now definitely like the way I'm talking now is like just how I talk. Right. But it's there are certain words that like there are certain words that I don't say because they're communication problems because they're so local. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, like what? Like, oh, there was um, 
There was one there. It's all stuff that I didn't realize was local till like college or after like bubbler for water fountain. Bubbler. That's a New Hampshire thing. Too. Yeah, it's New, it's New England. And then um, I think Milwaukee, they also say it, which is a weird pocket. But so that's one that I just like gave up because it was like, well, people are going to ask too many questions. <laughs> um, and what was the other one? Oh, it's um, Cumbies. Cumbies. <laughs> Cumberland Farms. Uh, Wait, what is that? It's a, like a Tedeschi 7-Eleven type little grocery store, uh, convenience store. Cumbies. Yeah, Dunkies, Cumbies, all that. But then there's there's one more that I like. Oh, this it's a space shot. Like a kid's such a space shot. Like he's out in space. Like his oh, like a space cadet? Yeah, like a space cadet, but space shot specifically. And I said that to someone and they're like, no one's ever said that. That's not anything. And I was like, no, people say it all the time. Uh, so that, but so I'd given up like a couple little lexical items because it's just like more trouble than it's worth. And lastly, Bruised by Dawn says, just mirror everyone, when someone else changes, excuse me, <clears throat> when someone else changes the oil in your car, they put the new filter and drain plug bolt on way too fucking tight. This person it sounds like they own a farm because they've had like, you know, and I'm going to work out on the land right. all day and I don't I shower. And then when I, uh, I, I would literally never know. There, I know. At, no, at no point in my life would I know what too loose or too tight for that thing to be. Is. And I bet Jeff might not know because he changes his own oil. I do change my own oil, but I have taken it in a couple other times. Uh, and yes, I completely agree. They Whoa. just they put it on the they it's it's called gorilla tightening. Why do they do that? Uh, to show you who is strong in their arms. <laughs> some of them they use. Some of the guys use an impact wrench to do it, just because it's faster. Um, but yeah, you're you're not supposed to over tighten that, right. especially because it's you know it's a. It's a drain plug that you're trying to get to a bunch of times. But yeah, I, I actually got a nylon uh, washer that I put in there so they really can't. Oh, so that it can't come clamp all the way down? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I guess because it's not like a tire where you're like, well, it should be as tight as it can be. No, it just needs to be snug. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, it drives me nuts. I, I, it seems like we have an even break between people who change their oil sometimes and let other people do it sometimes and they say yes. And people who, I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I will always pay someone to change my oil, and I never notice that problem. Um, my first car used to burn through oil or whatever it is when it eats oil, essentially. So I had to check my oil all the mm-hmm. time, and I did occasionally add oil. Um, but this car, but the subsequent cars, no, that was things that other people did. And also, unless they know you're gonna. Tighten, uh, like be the next person to change it they're only creating a problem for themselves in their mind they're like well i did it this time maybe i'll do i want repeat business so i'm gonna have to un, un uh un uh, loosen i guess is the word not yeah. untighten maybe it's maybe it's some passive aggressive move against their co-workers figuring <laughs> i'm gonna put this on really yeah. tight and then he's gonna come back and during bob shift or randy shift <laughs> i hope randy gets this yeah randy work your wrists you said you've been working out show me prove it i tighten this with a ratchet <laughs> get at it that's an impact wrench. An impact wrench. <laughs> um, Josh Gondelman, it was so much fun having you on the what show. What a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you for having so me. so much. You guys, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, perhaps Josh's new book, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it helps out the show. Thank you for your Amazon support. Thank you for your PayPal support. PayPal links on the right side uh, of my website. We have t-shirts. You can find those on the right side of the website. Um, 
eventually there will be a new website and that will have a store tab. And I don't know how fast that's happening. It could, it, Hey, if you go to my website and it looks new, just look for the store tab. If it looks old and you're like, holy shit, when's the last time this was updated? Look for a picture of a t-shirt on the right side of the page. We have ringtones and singles and bonus episodes and you can get those on iTunes. Perhaps this noteworthy one. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. Get that by searching Hey, Go Fuck Yourself on your iPhone in the iTunes store. And this one, soon to be in iTunes. Search Touch the Tushy. They're also on Gumroad, G-U-M-R-O-A-D.com slash Allison Rosen. Again, that is Gumroad.com slash Allison Rosen. We have the song that Greg Heller made for the Al Quiz, available for a pay-what-you-want price at Gumroad. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Email us, show at gmail.com. Jeff, where should we go for you? You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Colonel Jeff Fox. Okay, and Josh, tell them where to find you and plug your everything. Oh, great. So I am. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Josh Gondelman. It's G-O-N-D-E-L man. I say that like Method Man spells his name, if that <laughs> resonates at all. And uh, w- watch Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and uh, buy my book. I, and I have book events in coming up... Uh, October 12th in Washington, D.C., October 13th in New York City, and October uh, tw- uh, 21st in Boston. And that you can find information on all my live stand-up dates and book stuff at joshcondelman.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? 